You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. I'm going to say one word, and then I want you to try to visualize the type of person that the term describes. Are you ready? That word is hippie. Now, I guess you probably thought of a person with long hair, you know, walking around dressed in a tie-dye t-shirt, and in some beads, a peace sign, you know, a general counterculture attitude, and some hallucinogenic drugs, and I bet that picture is nearly complete. Now try to imagine what a hippie would have been like if he or she had been born a century earlier. Now that's a tough thing to do, but one probably need not look further than the husband and wife team of Alva and Vesta Whipcomb Walker to do so. Both were born in Greenwich, Massachusetts, and they were married in 1822. The young couple then moved to Syracuse, New York, and started a family. The names of their children are a very big hint that there's just something a little bit different about this couple. First up was a daughter named Vesta, who's named after mom in 1823, so that's not really a big deal. But their second child was named Aurora Borealis, and she was born in 1825. Their third daughter was named Luna in 1827. Then they started to move towards a little bit more conventional names with the birth of Cynthia in 1828. In 1832, they sold their Syracuse property and moved to a new 33-acre farm that they had purchased on Bunker Hill Road in Oswego, New York. Shortly after arriving in Oswego, mom gave birth to their fifth daughter, Mary Edwards Walker. Of course, Edwards is a highly unusual middle name for a girl, but it was chosen to honor an aunt back in Massachusetts. And the final addition to the Walker family was a son named Alva Jr. Dad was a firm believer in free thought, and he is credited with building the first free school in central New York. The couple taught their daughters that they were the equal of any male and they encouraged all of their children to get a good education and to seek professional careers. When Oswego built its first school, Alva closed his and he converted the building into a mechanic shop. He specialized in the construction of doors, sashes, and the thing that's always in need, coffins. In his spare time, he read up on medicine and became a self-taught country doctor. The couple was in fact religious and church-going, but they were always the nonconformists. All of the children were expected to help out on the farm, but none of their daughters were allowed to wear corsets or any of the other tight clothing, you know, that was fashionable at the time. Not only was this clothing impractical for farm work, but mom felt it restricted breathing and it could potentially damage the internal organs of her daughters. Alva was an outspoken foe of tobacco and alcohol. They were steadfast abolitionists, and their home served as a station on the Underground Railroad as escaped slaves made their way to freedom in nearby Canada. 
Today, if you were to go by the farm, all you'd find there is a blue and yellow historical marker. You may be surprised to find out that there is no mention of any of what I've just told you on that sign. Instead, it is in honor of their daughter, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. As you can probably imagine, a female doctor in the mid-1800s was an incredibly rare sight. But that's only part of the reason as to why the sign is there. It is what Mary Edwards Walker did during her lifetime that makes her the real focus of today's story. So let's jump forward a bit to January of 1852. Mary is now 19 years of age and has just been hired to teach in the nearby town of Mineto. Her salary is meager, but she managed to scrimp and save what she could so she could fulfill her dream of attending medical school. In many ways, this is a crazy, crazy idea for the mid-1800s. The thought of a woman becoming a doctor just went against the social norms of the day. Not only was it considered indecent for a woman to see the human body in all its glory, but most believed that medicine was far too difficult of a concept for the meager female brain to grasp. Yet, in a way, Mary's timing couldn't have been more perfect. Just three years prior, Elizabeth Blackwell graduated from the Geneva Medical College in the Finger Lakes to become the first woman to receive a medical degree in the United States. And even though she graduated at the top of her class, the school got cold feet and decided to stop allowing women to enroll in their medical program. That same year, Stephen Hollister Potter, who ran the Central Medical College in Rochester, New York, he branched out and established the Syracuse Medical School. This school was unique in that it was the first medical college in the world whose policy was co-education from the start. Unlike traditional medicine at the time, which was basically just starting to use anesthesia and scientifically based medicines, Syracuse taught eclectic medicine, that focus on botanical remedies that were coupled with other treatments, diet, and of course, exercise. Syracuse Medical College was the perfect fit for Mary. She lived a bit outside the norms of society, and let's face it, she had no choice in the matter. This was basically the only medical school in the United States that admitted women, and if she wanted to be a doctor, that's where she had to go. Mary received her medical degree in June of 1855 and quickly found out that both the medical field and society as a whole would not accept a female doctor, particularly one with a degree from an alternative medical school. Her first step was to head off to Columbus, Ohio, the home of her father's sister. Mary was unable to establish a successful practice there, and she was back home in New York just a few months later. That fall, she married one of her classmates at medical school, Dr. Albert Miller. Their wedding was anything but conventional. Mary opted to forgo the traditional wedding dress and instead wore loose-fitting trousers and a coat dress that reached down beneath her knees. The word obey was stricken from the ceremony, and she insisted on being called Dr. Miller Walker. Mary joined her new husband's practice in Rome, New York, but it wasn't long before she found out that he was being unfaithful. The couple soon separated, and Mary moved to a nearby apartment. An ad in the room Sentinel announced the establishment of her medical practice, but she struggled to make ends meet. 
the onset of the Civil War forever changed her life. At 29 years of age, Mary gave up her medical practice and headed to Washington, D.C. to offer her assistance. Faced with a critical shortage of doctors, Mary was confident that the federal government would have no choice but to offer her an appointment. If she had only known how wrong she really was. When she arrived in Washington in October of 1861, it became clear that no one wanted the help of a female doctor. She was repeatedly asked to serve as a nurse, but she refused. Mary insisted she would only work as a medical doctor, but she had just too many strikes against her from the start. First, she attended a non-traditional medical school. Next, Mary was a strong, confident woman, you know, certainly not the dainty, faint-to-heart type that society expected women to be. And lastly, and perhaps the biggest strike against her, was she was a woman in a male-dominated world. Unable to secure an assignment from the military, Mary did the next best thing. She volunteered her medical services at a hospital that was set up at the still-under-construction U.S. Patent Office. Mary made an immediate positive impression on the surgeon in charge, a guy named Dr. J.N. Green. He asked the federal government to grant her compensation for her medical assistance, but the request was denied. The Surgeon General replied that he could never appoint a woman to such a position. So Mary continued to care for the wounded at the Patent Office through November and December of 1861, but ultimately opted to leave. One can only assume that it was for financial reasons. One month later, Mary was in New York City studying alternative medicine at the Hygieia Therapeutic College. Hygieia specialized in hydrotherapy and stressed a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, exercise, and proper hygiene. Now, a lot of people believe that today, but this was way out of step with the medical beliefs of the mid-1800s. She was granted a second medical diploma on March 31, 1862, and by October, she was back home in Oswego. In November, Dr. Walker returned to Washington before heading off to an encampment in Warrenton, Virginia, which was commanded by General Ambrose Burnside. Upon Mary's arrival, she realized that conditions were far worse than she could have ever imagined. Not only was the camp filled with critically wounded soldiers, but a typhoid fever epidemic was raging. Mary did all that she could to locate the necessary medical supplies, but they were an incredibly short supply. At one point, in an act of desperation, she tore her nightgown into strips to make compresses. Now that may seem like no big deal today, but it was quite scandalous in 1862. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It soon became clear that the lack of medical care and provisions made it nearly impossible to treat the men at the camp. Mary sought and received permission from General Burnside to take the sickest men back to Washington to receive better treatment. Now, there were so many men packed into this train that they had no choice but to place the less sick on top of the freight cars. And given little for the journey in the way of supplies, Mary did her best to care and comfort for the many soldiers aboard. Once the troops were delivered to Washington hospitals, Mary headed back out to the front. This time, she found herself right in the thick of it as the Battle of Fredericksburg erupted in December of 1862. With thousands of wounded pouring in from the battlefield, Mary's skill as a physician and as a surgeon were put to very good use. An appeal was made to the Secretary of War by Dr. Preston King, who had worked alongside Mary at Fredericksburg, and that was to get Mary compensation for her efforts. But once again, she was denied the commission, supposedly because there were no provisions in the law to allow for the appointment of a female doctor. From the onset of the war, Mary felt that doctors are amputating far more limbs than was absolutely necessary. Now being so close to the battlefield in Fredericksburg, she was even more certain that she was correct. As both a female and non-commissioned doctor, Mary was unable to stand up to the medical authorities and express her concerns, so instead she chose a much more subversive approach. When Mary learned that a soldier needed an amputation, she would ask to examine the patient herself. If she concluded that the amputation was unnecessary, she swore the soldier to secrecy and then told him to refuse the surgery. Without any income, Mary once again returned to Washington in early 1863 and attempted to set up her medical practice. Yet, she was unable to turn her back on those in need. She observed that thousands of women had come to the city in search of their loved ones, but most had no money. Even when they did have the funds, finding available lodging was nearly impossible. So as a result, many of these women just wandered the streets sleeping in public parks and the entranceways to homes. Dr. Walker secured aid from the city's mayor to set up a home for, quote, unprotected females and children. She rented a house on 10th Street that's right across from the historic Ford's Theater where Lincoln was shot, and she placed the following advertisement in the Washington newspaper, quote, Dr. Mary Walker has the pleasure to inform those females who are homeless that she has secured respectable rooms where they can remain overnight, free of charge. It was the first woman's home ever established in the city. In November, she penned a letter to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and she requested that she be able to set up her own regiment, and that included naming herself as surgeon. As you can probably guess, her request was rejected. So her next step was to write to President Lincoln directly, asking she be assigned to one of the Washington, D.C. hospitals. Surprisingly, the president sent her a personal reply, and it partially read, quote, The medical department of the Army is an organized system in the hands of men supposed to be learned in that profession, 
and I am sure it would injure the service for me with strong hand to thrust among them anyone, male or female, against their consent. He continued, If they are willing for Dr. Mary Walker to have charge of a female ward, if there be one, I also am willing, but I'm sure controversy on the subject will not subserve the public interest. In other words, it ain't happening. Clearly never the one to give up, Mary next asked Congressman Farnsworth to write a letter of recommendation on her behalf. In response, the Board of Medical Officers at the Department of the Cumberland handed down a scolding decision. It basically stated that Dr. Walker was totally unqualified and that, quote, her practical acquaintance with diseases and the use of remedies is not greater than most housewives possess. Instead, they felt that she was best suited to work as a nurse or in obstetrics. One can just imagine the frustration and anger that Mary felt with this latest rejection. She must have been furious. And that's when fate suddenly stepped in. Assistant Surgeon A.J. Rosa of the 52nd Ohio Volunteers suddenly died from an overdose of morphine, and the military brass was in urgent need of a replacement. This decision was probably made reluctantly, but General George Henry Thomas tapped Dr. Walker as Dr. Rosa's replacement. That allowed her to become the first female contract surgeon for the United States Army ever. The work was intense with little pay, but Mary was very happy to be offered the opportunity, even though it offered her no official commission or rank. In addition to her duties as a surgeon, Mary made frequent excursions deep into enemy territory, and that was to help those that were sick and wounded. On April 10, 1864, that's two months after her assignment to the 52nd Ohio, she took a wrong turn. She took the wrong road and it led her right into the hands of an enemy sentry. Mary was now a prisoner of war. She was sent to Castle Thunder, a former tobacco warehouse in Richmond, Virginia, which had been turned into a prison by the Confederacy. One can only describe the conditions at Castle Thunder as deplorable. The place was filthy, it was overcrowded, the prisoners were subjected to savage and barbarous treatment, and yet, despite all these hardships, Mary still managed to care for the wounded while she was there. After four months of imprisonment, Dr. Walker was released on August 12th of 1864. She had supposedly been traded for a high-ranking Southern officer, and Mary became the first woman ever exchanged for an officer, and she was actually quite proud of its significance. In her mind, it finally proved to the world that she was considered valuable to the U.S. government. But her time at Castle Thunder had taken its toll on her health. Mary had lost a significant amount of weight, her body was incredibly weakened, and she was now experiencing problems with her vision. This would ultimately mean that she would no longer be able to practice medicine. After her release, Mary returned once again to Washington. Then, on October 5, 1864, she was awarded a contract by the U.S. Army to become the acting assistant surgeon at the Louisville Female Military Prison. While still not a military commission, she did receive the title of surgeon in charge, and she was placed in command of all the prisoners and guards there. Unfortunately, things did not go well while she was there. The conditions at the prison were horrendous, and no one took well to taking orders from a woman. 
After six months at that prison, Mary requested that she be transferred back to the front. But as you can probably guess, that's not where the military brass sent her. On April 11, 1865, Mary was assigned to an orphan asylum in Clarksville, Tennessee. And after being there about one month, the Civil War came to an end. Mary was relieved of her duty and her service for the military officially came to an end on June 15th of 1865. Mary sought a post-war commission as an army surgeon, but once again that request was denied. One sentence in a letter that she received on November 2nd of 1865 said it all. Quote, Your application for a commission in the military service of the United States has been considered by the Secretary of War and decided adversely. There is no law or precedent which would authorize it. In other words, Mary was a woman and only men could be part of the military. Yet the military brass did not want to leave Dr. Walker empty-handed. It was felt that she should be rewarded in some way for her incredible assistance during the war, so on November 11, 1865, President Andrew Johnson awarded her the Congressional Medal of Honor for meritorious service. Mary was thrilled to receive the Medal of Honor. She wore the medal with great pride on her lapel, and when a replacement design was issued in 1907, she always wore both. Then, in 1917, her name was struck from the list of Medal of Honor recipients. Now, Mary wasn't alone. There were 910 others that included Wild Bill Cody who had their medal rescinded. It seems in early 1916, Congress decided to give each of these recipients a small pension, but that was going to cost a lot of money, so they tightened the eligibility requirements, and every Medal of Honor awarded since the Civil War was re-examined. It was determined by a board of generals that these 911 people no longer qualified. As you'd expect, Mary was outraged, and she petitioned the board to review her case, but they said that they had, quote, found no evidence of distinguished gallantry in her case. Mary, stubborn as ever, she refused to mail back the two medals, and she wore them for the rest of her life. As I mentioned, after the Civil War ended, Mary would never practice medicine again. She became increasingly eccentric in her ways, and her style of clothing evolved from wearing a dress covering pants when she was younger to a military uniform during the Civil War to an all-out male suit complete with a top hat as she got older. In fact, she was arrested several times for dressing as a man. She did the unthinkable when she boldly divorced her husband. And while she did receive a small pension from the federal government, she was able to independently support herself through speeches and working sideshows in the Midwest. Mary became an outspoken advocate for women's rights, but over time the suffrage movement won nothing to do with her because she had a differing opinion. Dr. Walker insisted that women shouldn't have to win the right to vote, that they should simply storm the polls and vote. She went as far as to lobby for what became known as the Mary Walker Bill, which stated, quote, Any law which denies women any privileges enjoyed by men is hereby declared to be in conflict with the Constitution. In 1891, Mary inherited the family farm and she moved back to Oswego. After a fall on the steps of the Capitol building in 1917, her health began to deteriorate. 
No longer able to care for herself, she moved in with neighbors, that's Mr. and Mrs. Frank Dwight, and she died in their Oswego home on February 21st of 1919. She was 86 years old. In 1976, descendants of Dr. Walker and members of Congress campaigned to have her Medal of Honor reinstated. On June 10th of 1977, Secretary of the Army Clifford Alexander Jr. announced that the Army would do just that, and it was made official with President Jimmy Carter's signature. That makes Dr. Mary Walker the only woman to have been awarded the Medal of Honor, the only woman to have it taken away, and, of course, the only woman to have it reinstated. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. First, men, when you crawl out of bed these August mornings and your face feels hot and sticky, enjoy a quick, smooth shave with Ingram's. Yes, with Ingram's shaving cream. Because Ingram's lather is purposely made cool to make your face feel cool and keep it feeling cool for hours. But that's not all this cool lather of Ingram's does for you. It piles up on your face in great velvety billows. It conditions your skin and softens and wilts your whiskers. Get your beard and skin all ready for your razor. So with Ingram's shaving cream, you shave quickly. Yes, some men say that by using Ingram's, they cut minutes off their shaving time. Also, you shave smoothly and cleanly and look younger when you're finished. Finally, you shave pleasantly, for the cool lather of Ingram's makes your face tingle with a feeling of delightful coolness. And it keeps your face feeling cool long after you put your razor away. So, men, why don't you use Ingram's? That's I-N-G-R-A-M-S. Ingram's shaving cream. It's that famous shaving cream that you can get in either a jar or a tube, whichever you like. Now, why not get a jar or a tube of Ingram's from your druggist tonight and enjoy a quick, clean, cool shave with Ingram's tomorrow? That commercial for Ingram's shaving cream is from the August 19, 1942 broadcast of Mr. District Attorney. This particular episode was titled Labor Pirates. Ingram's shaving cream was originally called Ingram's Therapeutic Shaving Cream, and it claimed to be the world's first mentholated or cooling shaving cream. It was originally manufactured by the Frederick F. Ingram Company of Detroit, Michigan, which was established in 1885. Its product line included Ingram's Milkweed Cream, Ingram's Rouge, and Ingram's Velviola Souvrain Face Powder. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right. Anyway, the company was purchased by Bristol Myers, which is now Bristol Myers Squibb, in 1928. Ingram's Shave Cream is a hard-to-find product in the United States, but it can be found at Shave Specialty and other online retailers like Amazon and eBay. My guess is that it's an imported product. It is currently manufactured by Lorna Mead, which is a division of the Li and Fung Group of China. The product originally came in distinctive cobalt blue glass jars, but today you'll have to settle for the toothpaste-like squeeze tube with cobalt blue lettering. In other news, on October 27th of 1937, Stanley Ditzel, who is a switchboard operator at the West Orange, New Jersey Town Hall, he received a call from a woman asking to be connected to the Board of Health. The line was busy, so she explained her situation to the operator. It seems that shortly after her husband left for work, she went to feed the dog and realized that it was the chopped meat that she intended to use to make breakfast patties for her husband. Yes, she made her husband's breakfast from the meat inside of a can of dog food. 
both the husband and the dog were unharmed, and the operator assured the wife that it was perfectly safe. I'm guessing that he didn't mention to her that most dog food back then was made from, and I'm sure you know this, horse meat. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On Sunday, March 12, 1950, three Hinsdale, Illinois children, that's 12-year-old Sharon Drahlmeyer, her 9-year-old brother Richard, and their 7-year-old neighbor Thomas Hayes, failed to return home after a movie. Alarmed, the two fathers went to the theater, but the children weren't there. The police were contacted and the community began a search for the missing children. As Mr. Drahlmeyer began to search a nearby house that was under construction, he kicked a large toolbox from which he heard the kids shouting. He quickly opened it and all three children were found inside. It turns out that while the kids were on their way to the movie, Thomas, you know, the neighbor, he had fallen into a pond and he was soaked. Fearful of going home in such a wet condition, he climbed into that toolbox. The other two climbed in with him and suddenly a gust of wind just blew that lid shut. Unable to open the lid, they frantically screamed for help before finally giving up and going to sleep. The children had climbed into the toolbox between 2 and 2.30 in the afternoon, and they were rescued at 7.30 that evening. As I've mentioned before in this podcast, one of my favorite television shows of all time is The Twilight Zone. I have to admit it'd be hard to imagine it without the on-screen presence of its creator, Rod Serling. Yet few people realize that he did not appear on the show during the entire first season. He only did the narration. At the end of the first season, the show's sponsors, that's General Foods and Kimberly Clark, they opted not to renew their contracts with the CBS network. And of course, you know what that means. If you don't have a sponsor, the show would be canceled. Well, according to a June 7, 1960 New York Times article, CBS concluded that the only way they could convince sponsors to keep supporting the show would be for them to secure the talents of a big-name celebrity host. Their choice was actor Orson Welles. But luckily for those of us who are big fans of Rod Serling, myself included, Welles declined the offer. It was speculated in the article that General Mills and the news sponsor Colgate-Palmolive they agreed to advertise on the show because of Wells' supposed involvement, but that was never confirmed. Instead, Rod Serling was informed that he would provide both the introduction and the closing to the show. Which leads me to today's question of the day. After The Twilight Zone was finally canceled by CBS, the ABC network wanted to pick up the show and change its name. What name did they propose for the series? This is a really obscure question, so I'll give you five choices. You ready? One, another dimension. Two, a world beyond space. Three, the fourth dimension. Four, the time element. Or five, witches, warlocks, and werewolves. So which one do you think it is? (laughs) 
hope that wasn't too annoying. I just couldn't help but put it in. So which one did you choose? While the time element was the name of Rod Sterling's original pilot for the series, ABC, believe it or not, wanted to call the new show Witches, Warlocks, and Werewolves, choice number five. Sterling declined, stating that, quote, I don't mind my show being supernatural, but I don't want to be booked into a graveyard every week. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. As always, you can find additional true stories just like the one you heard on my website. That's uselessinformation.org. You can also check out the two books that are written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. If you've never done so, please be sure to like the show on Facebook. Uh, you can do so by doing a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye.